people ask me, how do you keep your sanity out there? And I'm like, it's the easiest thing in the world. How do you keep your sanity in a world of Facebook and social media? That's what I want to know. I think that's what drives people crazy. I mean, being in the wilderness to me is the most relaxing and joyful thing in the world. I love it. That's Canadian solo Arctic explorer Adam Schultz. He's our guest on this episode of Explore, a Canadian Geographic podcast brought to you by One Ocean Expeditions. I think right now we're enjoying very much looking back at the Earth, and it's just been a fantastic experience, and I just can't wait to get back and start telling people. We have Simpson about June 10th with a fur brigade consisting of a number of York boats, each manned by 10 voyageurs. For us, it means that Inuit oral history is very strong. Yeah, we flew all over every inch of the country that could be. We were hoping that he would fire at us. Oh, I guess 160 dives or so. Welcome to Explore, the Canadian Geographic podcast, where we hear from some of the world's greatest explorers about their adventures and how Canada, its landscape, people, wildlife, and history have inspired their spirit of discovery. I'm your host, David McGuffin. Adam Schultz is our guest on this episode of Explore. He's a young man, still in his early 30s, but he is in many ways a throwback to a much earlier era of exploration. His one-man adventures across the Canadian Arctic and around the Hudson Bay lowlands bring to mind the great early Canadian explorers Alexander Mackenzie or David Thompson. His love of challenging himself against the many difficult conditions presented by the Canadian wilderness have earned him the nickname Canada's Indiana Jones. Adam is a Royal Canadian Geographical Society Explorer-in-Residence. He's written extensively about his own adventures, including the bestseller Alone Against the North, and his upcoming book Beyond the Trees, about his recent 4,000-kilometer journey across the Canadian Arctic. And just a quick note that in this interview, Adam refers a couple of times to an RCGS expedition I took last year, retracing the route my great-grandfather Charles Campbell mapped with the Peel watershed in the Canadian Arctic back in 1905. I'm recording this in the Sir Christopher Ndache reading room at the headquarters of the Royal Canadian Geographical Society on 50 Sussex Drive in Ottawa, overlooking one of the world's great exploration routes, the Ottawa River. But for this interview, Explorer went on the road to Adam's house in Norfolk County on the shores of Lake Erie. Do you have a book coming out? Tell us about that. What's the title of that one? Uh, it's going to be called Beyond the Trees. Mm. And it's called Beyond the Trees because my journey took place mostly beyond the trees on the Arctic tundra. Right. And it's the story of the journey I did alone across Canada's Arctic mm-hmm. in 2017. Right. So I want to say most people, when they do a trip in the Arctic by canoe, they tend to get on a river and they go towards the Arctic Ocean. <laughs> in Schultzian manner, you didn't do that because I think that was probably too easy. Is that... Well, yes. I mean, I, you just told me you could need the Peel River, right? Right. So you're familiar with all those rivers. I was actually traveling, but I was doing it sort of the unorthodox way. I was paddling upriver. Yeah, so um, I had the current behind me and it was lovely. <laughs> yeah, my total route when you factor in all of the weaving along lake shores and backtracking on portages, because the other thing, doing it solo, I had to make uh, seven trips on every portage, four loads plus the backtracking to get the next load. So. Mm. Out of that nearly 4,000-kilometer route I did across the Arctic, I think around 1,200 kilometers was upriver. Wow. 
And that was some pretty powerful rivers. I went upriver on the Mackenzie, pretty strong current on that river. That is, yeah. And uh, you know, a lot of people beforehand when I was planning my route and they yeah. saw that I was planning to go solo in a canoe up the Mackenzie, yeah. they kind of said, are you insane? And then I told them, well, you know, the Mackenzie is the easy part. I actually have to go up river on the copper mine. <laughs> right, which is a fast moving river. It's yeah. a very powerful yeah. river yeah. with, you know, serious class five rapids, canyons and waterfalls. So when they heard that I was going to go up river on the copper mine, people thought, you know, it was an actual case of self-harm. I've got something wrong with me. Nobody goes up river on the copper mine. Yeah, I mean, so my, my expedition, there was three of us, you know, which I think is even not the ideal number. It's uh, they say you should be at least, what, six on a trip like that. Some yeah. canoe outfitters yeah. in northern Canada won't rent canoes to a party of anything less than four for safety reasons. Yeah. So there you are on your own. <laughs> <laughs> I don't mind solo travel. I don't think anything I do is that dangerous. No. Everyone else perceives it that way. Um, we were talking about Ottawa and how I used to commute on Fallowfield Road there. And yeah. I honestly think that Canadians with long commutes on icy winter roads are in more danger than I am on any of my canoe journeys. I mean, I've done over 80 different canoe journeys in the wilderness. I've never had any injury worth mentioning and I've never needed search and rescue. To right. me, I'm not doing anything scary. I'm just doing what I love. Um, but yeah, upriver travel is certainly arduous. Right. Um, I mean, you're, so you're basically, you're dragging your canoe a good chunk of that. Is that right? Or uh, I use a whole variety of different techniques. Yeah. One of my favorite techniques is kind of a lost art and that's mm. poling. So I stand upright in the canoe, which some canoe instructors will tell you is yeah, rule number one, never is... stand up in a canoe. Exactly. But I, I always stand up in canoes all the time, um, even going downstream. But um, yeah, so I stand upright in the canoe and then I have about a 10 foot long pole. And with the 10 foot long pole, I'm actually able to reach the river bottom. And then I push off the bottom upstream against the current, which is a lot more efficient than trying to paddle against the current. I mean, even if you're a gold medal Olympian, you can't paddle against a current that strong if it's like a 13 kilometer velocity right. current an hour, uh, but you can pole. I mean, that's how that works. Almost like the pole vaulter pushing off the river bottom. On the Mackenzie River, which has a pretty strong current, maybe five kilometer an hour current, right. I could do three kilometers an hour upstream. That's so, impressive, yeah. Yeah, my two best days on the Mackenzie, I put in 37 kilometers upstream. Um, wow, that is impressive. Um, I guess exhausting, but so, but that's still much quicker than even if you dragged or... Yeah, yeah. I do drag um, in places where there's whitewater rapids yeah. and it's just too powerful for yeah. pulling. Then I either get down in the river itself. I mean, I, my route involved over a dozen different rivers. Right. Um, so a lot of the rivers I'm down in the rapids, uh, dragging the canoe. Or if the current is too strong or the water is too deep and mm -hmm. I can't pull and I can't wade, uh, then I do what's called tracking or lining, which is I'm on the shore with a rope tied right. to the bow and I'm just walking it up the shore with a rope, right. which is probably one of the more hazardous types of canoe travel you can do because it's very easy for the canoe to catch the current wrong or to hit a rock and flip over. Right, so right. You have and to you're be careful. Un uneven banks as well. And yeah, yeah, the banks are just littered with skull-sized rocks, so <laughs> perfect for tripping yeah. or twisting an ankle. Yeah. Uh -huh. What's a memory that really stands out for you on that trip? My favorite memories are all about the wildlife. Yeah. Um, I think I had about seven different Arctic wolves wow. throughout my journey. Yeah. Um, look me in the eye. Yeah. Some of them as close as, you know, 20 feet away. Wow. And uh, I mean, they're absolutely fascinating. Some, one of them followed me for about a kilometer and a half. Along the river. Yeah, just followed me along, totally curious, in no way threatening. You could see how curious this animal was. The wolf would kind of cock his head to the side, look me up and down, but very skittish. If I made the slightest noise, if I accidentally tapped my canoe, the wolf would jump back like five feet and duck behind a rock mm -hmm. and then wait uh, a few minutes before poking his head out again. So wow. 
yeah, that's what I really cherish, the memories of the wildlife, uh, these really unique encounters up close and personal with caribou and muxhawks and wolves and bears and birds and all other kinds of wild animals. I know you, in previous journeys, you've had uh, definitely moments where you were fearing for your life. I, I think there was a polar bear moment at one point. <laughs> but on this journey, was there something like that? that... Oh, I had lots of scary moments, but uh, as far as wildlife went, well, I surprised a lot of people. A lot of people were surprised I didn't carry any kind of firearm, mm. which is generally, I mean, I don't know if you carried a firearm on the peel room. We did not, we had bear bangers. Yeah. yeah. So I only carried bear spray and a couple of bear bangers. Mm. And a lot of people, you know, they were surprised that I didn't carry any kind of firearm, but um, right. I generally don't carry firearms. And I never used my bear spray at all. Right. And I saw 14 different bears, including one that woke me up outside my tent and was growling at me, but I just kind of right. shoot him off. Uh, the scariest wildlife moment, as far as wildlife went, was actually a, a muck ox. You know, kind of like an Arctic bison. If yeah. you haven't seen one, yeah, yeah big no. shaggy coats. They look like something out of the ice age. They really do. Yeah. And uh, I've probably seen over a hundred muck ox on mm. different Arctic journeys, mm. and they've always been gentle giants. They just kind of graze on the tundra and don't pay any attention to you whatsoever. But there was one night in August, about three months into my journey, where I was sleeping on this little sand hill. And I heard the most terrifying noise I've ever heard in my life around 4 a.m. outside my tent. It sounded like a half kind of snort, half bellow. And I knew there's only one animal on the planet that could have made that noise. And that was a big uh, bull, bull mox ox. And I thought, oh, he's probably just grazing. I don't know what's going on. So I unzipped the screen door of my tent. And about 10 feet away is this huge mox ox. And he's glaring right at me. If you've ever read survival manuals, you know, they'll say like, Never make eye contact with a wild animal. You're right. challenging it for dominance. Right. So I just unzipped my screen door like five inches and there's a muck sock staring right at the opening in my screen door. So I zipped it right back up. That was my most terrifying moment. I mean, he was snorting, he was pawing the ground, he was in an attack mode. Right. For people who haven't seen it, they've got a good set of pointy horns on them. Yeah, they yeah. have massive curved horns yeah. that can be up to three feet long or yeah. something like that. Yeah. And uh, they charge each other. I've seen the males charge each other and yeah. they have ram heads. So that was a little bit of a sweaty palm moment that lasted about 10 minutes with him outside my tent, walking around it, snorting and bellowing and doing all this stuff. And then... So, I mean, you're just sitting there hoping and waiting. Is there a way to protect yourself in this moment? Well, it wasn't, I definitely wasn't going to try to use a bear banger on an animal that close. I mean, yeah. he was likely to charge into my tent as charge away. And I didn't right. want to use bear spray on him either. So right. I just kind of looked around inside my tent all alone. I was like, well, what can I do? What can I do? And then I saw my pillow. Right. My pillow is actually my life jacket, which right. I double up as a pillow. And I was like, oh, this will help. So I grabbed my life jacket and I zipped it up. And I'm like, now right. I at least have padding on my body. So I'm protected from this half ton creature. Not quite Kevlar, but it's, yeah. Yeah, but it's something, I guess. Yeah. Well, the rational side of my brain was saying, this is completely idiotic. This uh, little right. padding will do absolutely nothing if a mock socks tramples you. I was listening to the non-rational side of my brain, which was like, it's psychological comfort to have padding of some kind, but I just made myself as small as possible because I was like, when he charges into my tent, hopefully I can just jump to the one side and miss his horn or his hoofs. And he went around to the other side of my tent and then finally he galloped off down the hill. So after that, I I had the strangest sensation that I just didn't feel like sleeping anymore. So for whatever reason, I packed up my canoe and just paddled away as far as I could go. (laughs) Benefits of 24 hour sunlight too, right? You Uh can just up and go. Yes. One of the things I've been talking to a, a variety of explorers and residents for the RCGS, how you manage fear has been a topic that just keeps coming up. And I mean, you're completely on your own in that situation. I mean, you must be terrified. I mean, how do you manage that fear and keep yourself going? Well, I think you definitely adjust. 
on any journey I do, and I do multiple journeys all throughout the year, mm. solo and bear territory, usually the first week you're hyper sensitive to any noise outside your tent and right. you're always kind of looking over your shoulder. You have this feeling, you know, is someone following me or am I being watched? And your bear spray is always on your belt or nearby. But at least in my experience, after a few weeks, you just kind of adjust to your surroundings and that becomes your new normal. And then I usually sleep better in the wilderness than I do at home. Uh, I sleep soundly all through the night. And, you know, as I was saying with the mock socks, you just kind of become accustomed to them or the bears right. and you don't really worry about it. Right. You know, usually on my first journey, if I find like a grizzly track outside my tent, that kind of, you really sit up. But then after a month or so of that, it just becomes part of your world. I guess the best analogy I could use is if you're not from a big city, like I'm from a small town, you go into a big city like Toronto and you're like, oh, you know, how do people walk these streets or down these alleys at night when I hear on the news all these murders and bad things happening? Right. People who live there. Right. You find a way to rationalize. They're like, yes, yeah, one on. in a million. Like yeah. they don't let that scare them. Right. And you just kind of get used to it. I, I mean, people always want to hear about wildlife. They think, well, bears, that's got to be the scariest. But the only thing I really fear is not wildlife. I mean, I think wildlife would have to rank really mm. low down the list of hazards. The thing that scares me is wind and waves, like crossing big Arctic lakes. Oh, right. That's what actually terrifies me. Getting it's, swamped. Because <laughs> you uh, went across, I guess, Great Bear on this trip, right? Would that be right? Yes, I canoed across uh, Great Bear Lake, um, which is the eighth largest lake in the world. So, yeah, I mean, there'd be icebergs on the lake and big waves and water temperatures even in midsummer is just a couple degrees above freezing. So when you say icebergs, I mean, you think that would surprise people? Oh, it surprised me. <laughs> so how high are these things? Well, the biggest one I saw was probably 20 feet out of the water. And I was curious about it because obviously when we think of icebergs, we think of salt water. Yeah, exactly. And icebergs break off of continental shelves in Antarctica or Greenland. So I was kind of curious because I'd never seen a freshwater iceberg of that size. Mm -hmm. And I'm kind of wondering, well, how does this even form? Right. And I just realized from looking at them that it seems like it's when the ice is breaking up in early July, late June, uh, the waves on the lake would kind of pile one ice flow on top of another and it would just eventually accumulate until you have like an ice castle looming right. out of the water. So it was really neat to see freshwater icebergs. So you're in a canoe. So what kind of canoe are you in? Uh, my canoe is made by Novacraft, which mm -hmm. is a Canadian canoe company. Mm -hmm. And it's uh, so made out of what though? Uh, well, this one that I paddled was made out of polypropylene, mm -hmm. anigra fibers, I think it's called, as well as uh, basalt, a type of igneous rock. And then it's all fused together with right. a waterproof resin. So, so it can handle pack ice on Great Bear Lake. Yes, that? yeah. It's not a traditional canoe. I mean, I grew up doing traditional bushcraft. My father was a woodworker. Oh, so we built birch bark canoes. We built cedar strip canoes. And that's what I paddled for years, just traditional wood canoes or bark canoes. Mm. And I have a great fondness for those types of canoes, but... One thing you realize pretty quickly is birch bark canoes were never meant to handle that kind of abuse on rocks and ice. And that's why you need the new modern materials. Um, I mean, I spent days just paddling across ice flows where I'd be basically using my canoe as an icebreaker. Wow. And I'd be ramming through ice flows for miles after miles after miles. Wow. And, and held up. Held up, but it did a lot of damage. I mean, yeah. by the end of my journey, the canoe was pretty much out of operation. It was paper thin the hull and the fabric was really starting to tear through and uh, wear down. I mean, mm. that, and that was part of the challenge is how do you design a canoe that can survive a 4,000 kilometer journey? Right. Novacraft or any other canoe manufacturer, they can build a canoe that's 100 pounds. It's virtually indestructible. And then 100 pounds becomes a huge liability yeah, on solo portages. portages. Yeah. So, so for my canoe, basically we went 
with kind of a Goldilocks approach, not too light, uh, but not too heavy. So it weighed about 53 pounds, right, um, right in the middle. So, so manageable, but yeah. Fortunately, and it looks like we hit it just about right because it survived and I got through it all. Um, are you seeing people at all in this journey? Uh, I did see some humans, yeah. but there could be a whole month go by and I never saw another human being. Yeah, yeah. Um, mostly the people I saw were the bush pilots who resupplied me. I saw two boats on the Mackenzie River. And because again, I was really early in the season. I was still paddling by ice piled up on the Mackenzie River. Right. It had just melted. I got there at the end of May. And uh, mostly people in the canoe in the north are doing it mid-summer, right? right. Mid-July, August to take advantage of the best weather and best ice conditions. Yeah. Whereas a lot of my traveling was in the shoulder season at the start of my journey in May and at the end in September, um, which is really high winds and stormy weather in the Hudson's Bay watershed. Yeah. So I didn't see very many people at all throughout my journey. I saw a few, but there was two different months where I didn't see another human. I mean, so how do you keep your sanity through that? Obviously, you're good alone. You're good with yourself, I guess, is part of it. But I mean, there must be a lot of chatter going on in your own head. Well, yeah, people ask me, how do you keep your sanity out there? And I'm like, it's the easiest thing in the world. How do you keep your sanity in a world of Facebook and social media? That's what right. I want to know. And right. how do you keep your sanity in podcasts and traffic? I think that's what drives people crazy. Yeah. I mean, being in the wilderness to me is the most relaxing and joyful thing in the world. I love it. You, know, you don't have to spend four months alone, but if people could just spend an hour out of each day unplugging, you know, turning off their phone and yeah. just going somewhere quiet, like a local park or yeah. wherever, I feel like that would do worlds of good for our society, for people to just you know, yeah. de-stress. For me, I love it. It was easy. The solitude was not a problem. I didn't feel alone when I had birds outside my tent mm -hmm. and uh, seeing caribou and moose and wildlife. I did feel a little lonelier in September because by about mid-August, it's really fall. All the birds are mostly uh, migratory that have left. So it was much more quiet at right. the end of my journey. I didn't have the birds singing anymore. So that was a little more lonely and you know the weather is getting a little more miserable with rain and the darkness was coming back at night. Right. And, well, uh, I guess you're very aware the winter's coming too, right? I yeah. mean, there's that that's a sign that something's about to happen. Yeah, all through my journey I said three words over and over again in my head. Uh, winter is coming. <laughs> so I had to, I knew it was a race against the seasons. I'm just racing against the first blizzard and the ice up in the fall, so I right. had to keep moving, putting right. one foot in front of the other. What was the most surprising thing on that trip for you? Well, the most surprising thing, you know, it's funny. Um, most people, when they picture Canada's Arctic, they mm. picture snow and ice and not a whole lot else. Right. It's just, I think a lot of people around the world, that's how they picture Canada. It's the stereotypical view of snow yeah, and yeah. ice. Yeah. And I'd already traveled widely across Canada's north, so I was familiar with it, but I'm still astonished by the landscape diversity. I mean, the diversity of different landscapes in the Canadian Arctic is amazing. There are right. parts that always surprise me. There were parts where you would think I was in the Sahara, nothing but sandy deserts as far as the eye could see. Yeah, fascinating. Uh, yeah. That was, what was that? Uh, that would be in the, along the Hanbury River, which is kind of in the central Arctic near the Nunavut, so Nunavut. Northwest Territories yeah. boundary line. Yeah. And basically, again, as far as I know, just from looking at it myself, it just looks like it's such a windy area, right? You can have right. gale force winds, yeah. hundreds of miles an hour. Uh, that powerful, relentless wind strips away the thin soil and it exposes the sand underneath. And you can see it actually, if you just go on Google Earth and you look at satellite images, you will see sandy barrens that cover four kilometers or more. So actual dunes and stuff. Like sand that. dunes, sand hills, and just white sand as far as the eye can see. Fascinating. Yeah, you don't picture that as in the Canadian Arctic. Right. 
And pe- I think people think of the tundra, right? I mean, that's sort of the classic Arctic scene, but you were th- probably through, I mean, it's above the trees, but you were in trees at the start. Yep, yeah, there's parts. So there are also, there are other places, they call them Arctic forests, where you have black spruce and tamarack and right. willow and uh, right. growing north of the Arctic Circle as far as, you know, 66 and 67 degrees latitude. Yeah. Um, so that's interesting. There's parts that are more lush, like you have this really lush sphagnum moss and... Uh, a variety of different plant life in the Arctic. You have other places that are just stony and barren and you know, the oldest rock on the planet that goes back 4 billion years. Yeah. Um, rock as old as time and that looks very desolate and barren. And there are other places where you see you know, red sand, sandstone cliffs that look like it could be Prince Edward Island. There are places that it's flat, it could be Saskatchewan and other places that are mountainous. Yeah. Um, so I love the diversity of the landscape. Yeah. It's so exciting to see what's going to be around the next bend. Or, yeah, yeah. You know, I can look at this map or the satellite image for a year and yeah. daydream what's it going to be like, but you never really know what it's like until you, you get a feel for it and you experience it in person. It's such a huge territory, I guess. <laughs> if you think about it, it makes sense that it would be that diverse. Yeah, because, it's very diverse. Because yeah. you went 4,000 kilometers. Yeah, right? I mean, yeah. So the starting point was where? I started in Eagle Plains, population oh, okay. nine people. So Yukon. Yeah, I started in the Yukon. I either wanted to start in Old Crow, population about 300 people, yeah. or Eagle Plains. Yeah. But you know, I knew coming into this journey, it really wouldn't be my decision. It would be up to Mother Nature. Yeah. Mother Nature would determine where I would start, and that would depend on the ice melt. What was open, yeah. Yeah, yeah. so it was a late ice melt, 2017, yeah. by the standards of recent years, yeah. uh, which meant I had to start from Eagle Plains. And then all the way across to, did you get to Hudson's Bay or you? I got to Baker Lake, Nunavut. Oh, which is close though. Yeah, An inland yeah. arm of Hudson's Bay. Yeah, yeah. Um, there's beluga whales and there's uh, seals that come up Baker Lake. Into the lake? Yep. Huh. Is it fresh water? It's it? fresh water. And uh, seals are regular and polar bears and all kinds of things. Yeah, 300 years ago, uh, European explorers mistook Baker Lake as the Northwest Passage because yeah. it's kind of a big inland arm of Hudson's Bay. I want to go back to where you began, which isn't actually, I don't think that far from here, right? So north of Lake Erie, where, where's, where's home for you originally? Well, I grew up in Fenwick, Ontario, mm-hmm. which is um, sort of the rural heartland of Ontario farming territory. Yeah. Yeah. My first job as a 14-year-old was on a local farm around the corner from my house. Uh, where I lived, it was just swamp forest, deciduous forest. Yeah. And we didn't have any neighbors. We didn't have any streetlights. We didn't have any pavement. So I couldn't skateboard or rollerblade. I had right. to learn how to play in the woods as a kid. My brother and my dog, we were always in the woods and mm. we just spent all our time in the woods. I mean, we built shelters. We tried to make fires without matches. And right. that was my playground. And that's where I first learned about trees and plants and animals. And I fell in love with the forest. And you yeah. know, to this day, I love nothing more than forests. <laughs> right, right. Um, and your dad, you say, is a carpenter? Yeah, he's, well, he was a woodworker. I mean, he, yeah. he carved, he built everything. Yeah. Um, he built clocks, he built canoes, tables, cabinets, right. uh, everything in our house. He built our house. Wow. Two and a half years building our house. That's impressive. And uh, yeah, my brother and I were really young. We kind of be turned loose in the woods while he's doing all the work himself. Yeah. And about your mom? Uh, my, well, my mom, she uh, she's from Morseburg, Ontario on the St. Lawrence River. Oh, yeah. And uh, she's less of an outdoorsy type, but she had a real love of literature, mm. goes to the library every week. And right. she really introduced me to my second great love, which was the library and reading. So I right. put those two things together, the woods and the library. It's a natural thing. Yeah. <laughs> so you have a twin brother, right? Is that... I have a fraternal twin brother. Nice. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Um, do you think that has something to do with going on your own into expeditions? And no, I don't think so. No. Um, you know, anyway, I do. I do expeditions with other people all yeah. the time. I have good friends who are my yeah. paddling partners. Yeah. It's just 
maybe I'm always out there. So half the time it seems like I'm doing it solo. Yeah. Going solo, I mean, you get to see so much more wildlife mm-hmm. and I love the simplicity of solo travel. Um, it's just you on your own and you kind of make your own schedule, sleep wherever you like, start yeah. wherever you like, do right. whatever you like. Uh-huh. So you're making birch bark canoes with your dad, which I have to say most people in Canada don't do with their fathers. <laughs> <laughs> so what's the secret to making a birch bark canoe that works? You know, the hardest part nowadays is just finding a big enough tree. Because if you want to do it the old-fashioned way, you build it out of a single tree, and you need a lot of bark for that. Right. So if you find a big old tree, the last time I built one was in 2011. I found a big tree maybe 100 feet from the house I grew up in. Yeah. I always feel a little bit sad, but you know, yeah. it's, it's a bushcraft tradition that goes back thousands of years. Mm-hmm. And I feel like if we encourage people to practice bushcraft and to take an interest in bushcraft, then you're an ally of the forest because right. we're going to save those forests. Um, but you build, a, you build it out of a single sheet of birch bark, and then everything else we built from our own forest as well. We used ash for the seats right. and the thwarts and the gunnels. And uh, we used spruce root uh, to sew it together from a white so, spruce. So you're and not using nails at all? No, no nails, no. Yeah. It's all woven together. Um, spruce root, as well as the inner bark of the basswood tree. It's almost like wire. And you wind it all up together. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How long does that take? Oh, you can do it really fast. I mean... You could build one in a week if you wanted to, really? depending on how many hours of the day you have to spare. That most recent one we built, we did it over about three weeks, but I was doing all kinds of other things. It wasn't, right. wasn't an everyday project. And you've canoe tripped in those. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they're fun to paddle. I mean, it's a very different experience. Yeah. I think that's what a lot of people don't realize. Modern canoeing is very different than traditional canoeing. So modern canoeing more stable, would that be one of the things? Or? Uh, just just what you can actually do on the water. Mm-hmm. Um, modern canoeists go through all kinds of rocks and rapids that traditional canoeists did not. Places where the rocks are worn and smooth from 3,000 years of portaging, right. 3,000 years of moccasin foots um, stepping on that rock. Whereas now canoeists will go through those rapids, at least the adventurous types will. But birch bark canoes are fragile. I mean, they're amazing, they're ingenious, mm-hmm. uh, but they will puncture on rocks that modern canoes won't puncture on. And mm-hmm. if you read old explorers' journals like David Thompson or Alexander McKenzie, um, repairing their canoes was not something they did every month or every week. It was something they did every day, like, sometimes several times in a day. Yeah, Like Alexander McKenzie, they're just constantly repairing their canoes. And they had to travel with a ton of extra birch bark mm-hmm. for that purpose to repair right. it. And that's just because if they you know hit a rock, it'll puncture the canoe. Where ABS... Rolex, those kind of things are built, aluminum canoes are built to just smash into rocks right. repeatedly. That changes the whole nature of your travel. Like when I went up river on a lot of these rivers, I can drag my canoe over rocks. I'm just, it's like nails on a chalkboard. I'm right. just constantly dragging. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Where I know voyagers or indigenous people couldn't do that. They would have to actually portage here. Yeah. It's a lot harder, a lot more time consuming, or they have to be a lot more careful in what they're doing. Yeah, and what do those canoes weigh too? Yeah, well, a birch bark canoes depend on the length, but a 16-foot birch bark canoe is not that heavy. It weighs maybe 60 pounds. Oh, it isn't heavy. No, yeah. no. About yeah. Similar to a fiberglass canoe. Right. You yeah. think of the fur trade, they would have had much bigger canoes. Yes, too. they had huge... That Again, that's a totally different experience. They're yeah. paddling like 30-foot canoes with 10 people in them, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's the other difference between, you know, in the 18th century, early 19th century, 90, 95% of all the canoeing that was done was a communal activity with a dozen paddlers working together. Uh, whereas today we think of it as largely something you do solo or with one other person. So very different experience. So you grew up in Fenwick. 
high school there, everything. It's the Fenwick doesn't have a high school, but yeah. uh, the town of Pelham, which is it's part of its larger municipality, has a high school. So I went to high school there. Yes. Yes. Uh-huh. Yeah. How, and it was good. Good high school experience. You're... Yeah. I mean, there was woods, a forest right behind the high school. So I used to go down in the forest all the time. My best friend Wes, he had a farm um, just behind the high school, and we'd go down to the farm and we'd walk in the woods. I remember we found rough grouse back there, all kinds of stuff. My elementary school was a real gem. Is an old elementary school that they actually just closed last year. Yeah, what was it called? Uh, it was called Palm Center. Mm-hmm. Our library was built in 1874. It was uh, like an old red brick library, and mm-hmm. they just built the modern school around it. But it was an amazing school to go to school at because it was surrounded by forest. And we weren't allowed in the forest, but it didn't stop us. Every recess, we'd be out in the woods building shelters and running around in the forest. So, you know, I mean, it was such a great school to have gone to, just a rural school. Actually get that freedom, yeah. Yeah, be in the woods. Yeah, We got detentions. I remember our teachers would be like, yeah, you, you can't go out in those woods, but we would always go in the woods. And, you know, it was one of those experiences where we'd tell stories about like uh, the hermit of the woods who, you know, kill you if he catches you and yeah, yeah. the haunted woods and all this stuff. And I remember there was a farm just on the other side of the forest that had a bison. There was one time where the bison got out of their enclosure and they were running around on our school soccer field. So we weren't <laughs> allowed to go out for recess until the bison were corralled again. Yeah, recess is canceled because there are bison roaming the playground. <laughs> That's fantastic. And then university was where? Uh, I went to Brock University and that was again, because I just didn't want to go into a city. I wanted to stay in the woods and right. uh, live at home and spend all my time in the forest. Right. I remember going to university thinking my skills were going to go go soft. So every day I would cook right. my lunch in the woods right. and just uh, do that kind of thing. No way. Yeah, no, every day I'd be out in the woods with my dog and I'd be like cooking and- Over a, like starting a fire. Yeah, and especially on rainy days. Like if it was a cold rainy day in December, I'd be like, oh, I gotta go in the woods now and make a fire so I don't lose my skills, right? Uh, I don't want my schooling to get in the way of my real education, which is in the forest. Adam, so. that's hardcore. <laughs> <laughs> no, I just looked at it on as fun. Uh, that's incredible. What's the key to getting a fire started in the rain? Well, if you have birch bark, you've got nothing to worry about because yeah. the oil in birch bark will light even when it's wet. But if it was like a downpour, I used to be in the woods with my cousin all the time. We'd build like a little um, shelter over the fire out of birch bark mm-hmm. just to shield it from yeah. the rain. And then once it's going, it's no problem. Of course, where I did my Arctic journey, there are no birch. So then you got to look a little harder uh, to find things that will burn. But usually you can find some dead sedges that are down under the lee mm. side of a rock yeah. and dig that out. And did you cook over fire the entire trip? Uh, not over the entire trip, probably over half of it. Right. Usually I could find enough Arctic willow yeah. to burn. Yeah. And uh, just, I mean, I make really tiny campfires. All I need to do is boil the smallest pot of water. And that's all I require, which is another kind of upside of solo travel. I know it's the standard. I mean, I'm always astonished. I see like 12 people on a canoe trip together. Yeah. It looks like a parade to me. But yeah. if you have that many people, you need to build a lot bigger fires, burn a lot more water, yeah. or you need to pack in a lot more uh, butane or propane exactly. fuel canisters. So I just need a little tiny fire and I boil my little pot and that's all I require. Yeah. And I only make one fire a day. Um, lunch and breakfast, I don't uh, make fires for. I just you can eat. Have cold something, yeah. I just eat energy bars and go. Yeah. <laughs> um, so what were you studying at Brock? I studied history. Oh, okay. Good stuff. I mm-hmm. also have a history degree, so well done. <laughs> uh, Canadian history or were you? Uh, well, we didn't have a specialization. Mm-hmm. It was just kind of history. Yeah. And I just sampled all over the menu. I took yeah. a lot of British history, Canadian history, everything I could put yeah. my hands on. I took a lot of ancient history, ancient yeah. Greece, ancient Rome, classics, right. uh, that kind of thing. So are explorers, like fascination with explorers, is that already in the mix at this point for you? or? 
I loved all of history. Like, you know, people probably expect me to say like, oh, you must have just been into Champlain. But really, yeah. when I think back, I was, I was more fascinated by the Great Pyramids. Right. How did they build the pyramids? Yeah. Or, um, you yeah. know, Thermopylae. And I just loved all of history. Explorers were part of it, but I was never a one-track just explorers. I found everything fascinating. I was like, I want to know about Mayans or I want to know about ancient mm-hmm. Egypt. Or I want to know about Mesopotamia or the Mongolian desert. Right. Um, but you, you, I mean, you have since read a lot about Canadian explorers and a lot of your research is actually yeah. using journals and that sort of thing. And so does that more come out of your actual travel first and then I'm doing this trip so I need to know what... Uh, I think I ended up specializing for my PhD in exploration literature, so I just made it my mission to read every Canadian explorer journal in existence Yeah, and spent years doing it, reading illegible, water-stained, handwritten stuff and yeah. going through all the archives and reading all these journals. And a lot of them are published nowadays, which is good because you don't want to be handling original documents. They'll deteriorate. Sure. Um, but I did. I, did, I learned a lot just reading explorers' narratives and fur trade records and that kind of thing. Yeah. Who's a Canadian explorer no one knows about but should? Oh, that's a good question. There's one who I, I he's my unsung hero. His name right. is Hubert Darrell. Okay, I never heard of him. Nobody's heard of him. He doesn't even have a Wikipedia page. Hmm. I mean, he's in 2019, you don't have a Wikipedia you page. You could take care nothing. of that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, I don't have a Wikipedia page either. So, yeah. um, But Hubert Darrell was a solo explorer. So like you. Yeah. Yes, he was like me. And uh, he was active in the late 19th, early 20th century. Okay. And uh, in his own time, he was a legend. Mm-hmm. You think of some really big giants of early 20th century exploration, like Stephenson or Elminston. Right. Uh, they knew who Hubert Darrell was, and they wrote about this guy with awe. Right. Hubert Darrell was a legend on a different level. So where is he from originally? He was originally from England, but he came to Canada as a boy. Yeah. And he settled in Manitoba on his brother's farm. Right. He had an older brother, and he was farmhand. Yeah. Then in 1898, he drifted north during the Klondike Gold Rush, uh-huh. and he never came back. Amazing. Uh, so he's an Arctic explorer from much of his... Yeah, he wandered over a, a huge territory. I mean, he wandered from Alaska to Hudson's Bay and back again countless times. And he did it, and this is what's so weird about him, he did it solo, but he didn't only do it solo. He did it without a canoe and without a dog sled team. I mean, in that time, when right. we think of the north, most people were traveling by dog sled. Right. Nine yeah, months a year, winter, yeah, dog yeah, sled. Yeah. Summer is not really a traditional northern travel season. Right. Summer, you wait for the ice to melt, you find a good fishing hole, yeah, and you exactly. fish. Yeah, yeah. And then you travel when the, ever the snow is back with your dog sled. Mm-hmm. He didn't have a dog sled, and he didn't have a canoe. He just wandered on foot. like In, in the winter? In the winter and in the summer. Wow. So he traveled for thousands of miles on foot. And he would always cross paths with far larger explorers. And they'd be like, how did you get in the Arctic archipelago? And yeah. you'd walk across the ice. So he was kind of a jack of all trades. He was a Hudson's Bay mail carrier. He carried the mail between isolated settlements. The Northwest Mounted Police, the forerunners of the RCMP, yeah. hired him as a special constable just as a guide to guide dog sled patrols from Dawson City up yeah. to Fort McPherson. Right, they need this guy as a guide, yeah, which is a famous route. Yeah, he did a little bit of prospecting. He did a little bit of this, a little bit of that. But he was just a lone wolf. He was a wanderer, and he was always on the margins. Like people kind of would see him in a fur trade post, and then he would disappear, and he would reappear six months later. So is he is he writing about this at the same time? He never published anything. Uh, His diaries have never been published. His letters have never been published. They exist. They exist, and I've I've read all of them. I have copies of them, and I want to bring his story to people. I'm writing a book about him. Oh, there we go. <laughs> uh, and I've been retracing his roots. Yeah. So my most recent Arctic journey, just yeah. this past fall, I was retracing his route in the Western Arctic. Right. And I'm going back this coming summer to retrace his final route uh, yeah. when he vanished. In 1910, at the age of 35, he vanished and nobody knows what happened to him. He never came back. Uh, 
So I'm going down the river he went down and trying to tell his story and I'm writing a book about him and um, yeah, I want to bring him to light because nobody remembers him. So this isn't the book that's coming out. This is a, that's the second book. Yeah, right. yeah. so similar territory though, but very similar. I traveled yeah. some of the same places he traveled. Yeah, yeah. amazing. Yeah. What's the river? Uh, he was on the Anderson River or thereabouts Which when he disappeared. Where? It's in the Western Arctic. It mm-hmm. flows uh, into the Beaufort Sea, east of Tuktoyaktuk. Okay. So I was interviewing people in Tuktoyaktuk and uh, you know indigenous elders who are in their 80s and nobody remembers Hubert Darrell. They remember the Lost Patrol and uh, Stephenson and all kinds of fascinating details from the 1920s and 30s. But Hubert Darrell was a lone wolf. He lived alone. He traveled alone. He was shy. He didn't interact. He was just kind of this guy under the radar. Huh. And there's a lot of mysteries about him and I won't be able to tell them all, but I just want to, you know, kind of, people have always been fascinated about lost explorers. And yeah. This is the cold case of cold cases. Yeah, yeah, He's no not Franklin. This He's is like a lost, lost explorer. Yeah. <laughs> so I want to yeah. bring him to light as best as I can. I have some of his hand-drawn maps, his letters to his parents and other things. And I find him interesting because in part, he seemed like a guy who wasn't, um, he didn't really like what the Industrial Revolution was doing to the world. He was kind of turned off by the Industrial Revolution. Mm-hmm. He seemed like he just wanted um, to turn his back on all of that and go away into the wilderness and right. find himself. So it's a, kind of a, a familiar story, but also um, right. one that's still fascinating, the yeah. call of the wild and all this. And you're saying these other explorers knew who he was, so there is other record of him yes, yeah, he, from other he, people's He accounts. turns up in other people's journals and other people's books. And uh, you know, the great Norwegian explorer, Hemiston, the first mm-hmm. man to the South Pole, he wanted to actually recruit Hubert Darrell reportedly to be part of his South Pole expedition. So he would have been the only non-Norwegian on the journey. Mm-hmm. And that's because Helmutson thought so highly of Daryl. Right. He thought he had like superhuman abilities. We yeah. need this guy. Yeah. And it uh, didn't happen. Daryl just kind of remained on his own, doing his own thing. Yeah. Uh-huh. God. You think about these guys doing that stuff too, like pre-Gore-Tex, pre- Oh, I think about that warm. all the time, yeah. Yeah, yeah. like yeah. it's wool, basically, but, right? Th- that's like, something I experienced myself. I was always doing expeditions on shoestring budgets. I had no Gore-Tex. My canoes were always used secondhand or things I built myself. Right. And I had nothing like in terms of good equipment. And then about 2014 or so, I had Mountain Equipment Co-op sponsor me. And nice. All of a sudden, I had top-of-the-line stuff, and I was like, oh, wow, this is so much easier. Wow, this is what uh, warmth feels yeah, like. Yeah, like now I don't even have to worry about hypothermia. I can just walk through the water, and I have waterproof socks, waterproof waders, yeah, neoprene, yeah. and Under Armour. It's a game changer. I mean, yeah. it's like... And these guys had none of that, right? No, no, it's, it's totally different nowadays with um, waterproof parkers, canoes that are almost indestructible. I mean, everything has changed. And I think about that all the time. Like it's having just the old technology makes it a thousand times harder. Right. right? Like I don't know if, when you retraced your great grandfather's route, yeah. did you only use technology from that time? No, no, okay. at all. No, we were definitely. I, some people like that. That yeah. recreating only using the old stuff. Yeah, no, and it would have been canvas. I mean, I, he never named what his canoe. It would have been canvas. Yeah, canoes, right. Yeah, though, I guess mm-hmm. at that point, it's 1905. Yep. Yeah. Um, and you know, and just the route. I mean, we did it much softer. We flew out of Mayo and Yukon and onto a lake, which is right beside the wind, and basically portaged 300 meters, and we were on the river. He went up over. The, into the Mackenzie Mountains, yeah. portage basically up like several days. <laughs> then it was coming down Nash Creek, which fed into the wind, but it was so covered in snow there actually 
they couldn't even portage. They were tunneling through the snow with all their gear. Tunneling. Uh-huh. Yeah. Well, it's funny. I read the, um, you know, on my journey alone across the Arctic, I had to travel as light as possible. Mm-hmm. My only uh, pleasure item was Lord of the Rings. Oh, I never read Lord of the Rings. Yeah. So I was like, I'm going to read this trilogy on this journey. So I had like three old paperback copies. Nice. You know, I'd, I'd never read them, but they're, they're actually almost travel books. So they, they, they spend yeah. a lot of time just traveling in wilderness. Oh, it's a hero's journey, Miller, totally. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And while I'm reading this, they're constantly talking about these wondrous gifts of the elves. Like the elves give them waterproof cloaks. The elves give them bread that they can eat that gives them enough calories to travel. And I'm like thinking to myself, wow, all this stuff now exists. Like these elf cloaks are our Gore-Tex jackets. Um, These elf bread things are 400 calorie bars that we can eat and it's our energy bar and we go all day. So I'm like, you know, half of this stuff, it exists now. And it's made our lives a thousand times easier. So you went through, you did, um, you've, you've now got a PhD and you say that was on explorers. It was actually on the influence of indigenous culture in the subarctic in the West Coast mm. um, in indigenous oral legends and how that influenced people in the fur trade and explorers and all this stuff. So it was a multidisciplinary uh, PhD that took me into anthropology and indigenous studies and archaeology and history and geography and all my interests kind of overlapped. It was a lot about wildlife. So I have a chapter all about the history of grizzly bears and grizzly bear attacks and you know researching legends of grizzly bears and the earliest accounts of them going back all the way to the, the oldest account I found was late 1600s in French um, and all these kind of legends and how they circulated on the frontier and from, that part of the from one culture to another. Right. Subarctic in the West Coast mostly. And you plan to teach with that or no no i uh i'm just uh i'm really a professional adventurer that's yeah. what i say right like yeah. i don't uh i don't have any teaching job or anything like that i make my living entirely from book sales and from modest speaker fees right, right. from when i'm asked to go speak at a high school or an elementary school or a library or a right. retirement club so right yeah right. that's how i make my living so go out and buy adam's books <laughs> <laughs> yes please do <laughs> alone against the north history canon 10 maps beyond the trees yeah but looking at explorers and sort of the business of that from like a century ago or more compared to what you're dealing with now, I mean, how much, what's the change? It is interesting that, you know, most of the really famous explorers like Shackleton, yeah. who's a legend nowadays, I mean, you know, you have all these CEOs, they admire Shackleton, he was yeah. a great leader. He was cash-strapped and poor and nobody cared about him in his own time. I right. mean, after Shackleton came back from his famous Antarctic adventure, he was doing lectures um, trying to make ends meet and apparently his lectures were like half full. Like, wow. you know, people didn't even come out to them. Right. And, and he was largely forgotten for most of the 20th right. century. It's like an epic polar explorer, like groundbreaking. And yeah, he yeah. He did basically, yeah. He was really overshadowed by Scott and the other guys. Yeah. And he wasn't really, really rediscovered until the 1980s when I think a biography was published on him. And now he's a legend. Like he's had movies made about him and people yeah. buy his books and yeah. all this stuff. But it's interesting that, yeah, a lot of explorers in historic times were, were penniless and cash-strapped and, um, you know, were always trying to make ends meet or do shoestring budgets. And that's kind of a big part of my own adventures. I think people kind of like the charm of that. You know, I thought the hardest part of going alone across the Arctic is not the journey. It's how am I going to come up with the money? Yeah. <laughs> I had a GoFundMe page and probably I'm not very successful with social or what do they call it? Crowdfunding. Yeah. And I raised, by the time I left on my journey, I was trying to raise $12,000 mm-hmm. on GoFundMe and I raised just under 5000 yeah. <laughs> I think they have about a 9% handling fee that they t- subtract. Oh, so that disappears, yeah. So I didn't succeed in terms of that fundraising, but I had a lot going on old-fashioned way. I had like, you know, local businesses in my hometown or from the Naya region being like, oh, you know, here's $500. We like what you're doing. And right. uh, 
I was able to raise the funds I needed and I pulled off my expedition successfully. I needed about thirty, thirty-five thousand dollars to cover all the airfare and all that stuff. Um, but yeah, that is sort of similar to old exploration right. when you read Fawcett and uh, Shackleton. They're always struggling with the same issue, which is they can't bankroll their own journey. <laughs> so what's um what's next for you? Well, I have a lot of projects I'm working on. One of which is searching for the lost explorer, Hubert Darrell, telling his story. The other thing I'm doing a lot of is endangered species research. Mm. I mean, I'm first and foremost an environmentalist before I'm anything. Yeah. Um, ecology is huge for me. I've been involved with environmental causes since I was in the third grade. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm still involved with environmental stuff. I started off as an environmental writer. Reflections of a Naturalist was my nature column. And what I want to do more of is exploring residents at the RCGS is uh, projects on endangered species. Right. So one of the projects I just finished is looking for Canada's rarest snake, the highly endangered blue racer. That took me to the other end of Canada, uh, from the Arctic to the southernmost part, the Carolinian forest on Pelee Island, trying to film and document blue racers and bring awareness to this really rare and amazing reptile. And what's I wanted, What's amazing about it? Well, it's a... One, it's the second longest snake in Canada. They can get up almost to five feet long. Wow, that's big. And they live in trees. Oh, so they drop on you. And they look like something out of the tropics. They have this beautiful blue, vivid blue color to them. Um, So just a fascinating snake. And Mm. you think, you know, more Canadians will see a polar bear in their life than they will ever see a blue racer. I mean, to see a blue racer is a very rare thing. And they're rare. I mean, there's a reason they call them racers. They're super fast. And like all snakes, they hear vibrations in the ground. So they're gone before you even get near them and they disappear. So it's this amazing animal, this snake, and it's so rare and it's endangered and it's disappearing. So I'd like to do more projects on endangered species. One I'm working on is Canada's rarest bird, Mm -hmm. a bird that is so rare, most ornithologists think it's extinct. And what is that? It's called the Eskimo Krulu. Mm-hmm. And it's a migratory bird, nests up in the Arctic, and then it would migrate to Argentina. Whoa. But the last official sighting was in 1989. I tracked down a guy in the Western Arctic, an Inuit elder by the name of Billy Jacobson. He's 86 years old. And he told me he saw one in 1992. Okay. So I've got some leads. Yeah, These are yeah. fresh leads. <laughs> and uh, we're looking for this really rare bird. Yeah. Officially, it is still listed as highly endangered. It's not classified as extinct. But hope has really faded. So I where do they, they nest in the Mackenzie Delta or where are they? Uh, actually, they're only known to nest on a single river, the Anderson River uh, in the Northwest Territories. And that's partly why they were vulnerable, right? Yeah. They're not a widespread bird. Right. And they did these big migratory journeys. Uh, mm. They would come through eastern Canada, Labrador, Quebec, down the eastern seaboard of the U.S., Amazing. over the Caribbean, down to Argentina. Yeah. And then they'd come back up the other way, over the Gulf of Mexico, through Texas, and up the uh, Great Plains. And uh, they disappeared. In the mid-20th century, the numbers plummeted. Habitat change in right. the American Midwest greatly affected this Arctic really? bird. Yeah. And that's partly what you know I think about it. Uh, the interconnected web of life. How we can't save Arctic species, many of which are birds, unless we preserve habitat in Iowa, in Ontario, in Argentina. I mean, that's so important. This is one planet, exactly. Yeah, yeah, the political boundaries are all artificial. They only exist in our imagination. In reality, the birds don't stop at the 49th parallel. They go across. So we have to work together on the Great Lakes. We have to work together all over the world to preserve you know, tropical rainforests in South America directly affect bird species in Canada. So we have to find ways to save these habitats. And I want to do more projects bringing awareness to those kind of issues and how we have to work together to save these places before it's too late. And we know here in Canada, bird species are collapsing, insect species are collapsing. Uh, it's, It's crazy. I mean, tree species diversity is going down. 
So I'm trying to do journeys that will um, help do in some small way something to get people to at least care about this and take some steps towards changing that. Well, listen, well, thank you for inviting me into your house. It's well, my been, pleasure. It's been a real pleasure to be down this part of Norfolk County. Yeah, well, thanks it's for coming. That's Royal Canadian Geographical Society Explorer-in-Residence Adam Schultz talking to us on Explore. Music and production for Explore is by Robin Dumas of SoundShield Studios. Do you want even more great Canadian Geographic content? Well, you can find it by going to cangeo.ca forward slash subscribe and ordering Canadian Geographic magazine. A subscription gets you six issues of the magazine every year with stories that will entertain, surprise, and educate you about the remarkable Canadian landscape, wildlife, and people. Subscribers also get bonus issues of Canadian Geographic Travel Magazine and a free wall map of this great country of ours. Subscribe today at cangeo.ca forward slash subscribe. <laughs>